any film that's actually working is only interested in the stuff that's conscious and in range insofar as it's bringing you into touch with stuff that's unconscious and out of range. Right. And the minute it stops doing that, it becomes like a Magritte painting where a man smoking a pipe is described as, here's a painting of a man smoking a pipe. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. I have a really special guest, one of my absolute favorite documentary filmmakers, Rick Burns. So now we have had both the Burns brothers on. He is a filmmaker responsible for Coney Island, which is totally amazing. The Donner Party was followed by that in 1992. Maybe the most incredible American story I have ever encountered. Everybody knows that they're eating each other, but... <laughs> but um, these were prosperous people who were still so greedy that they were willing to go out and missed by a day really being able to make a journey that nobody would have ever thought of them. But that one day delay meant that half of them died. And one of the survivors opened up a restaurant, you know? So, it, it, I mean, it, it has so many twists and turns and just grenade after grenade uh, uh, throwing it into different directions. I, and I had no idea. I mean, it's a story I think I first heard watching The Shining when Nicholson and Danny are talking about it. And whew, getting into the granular of it, you get into a lot of the DNA of America um, very unexpectedly. After Donner Party, New York, a documentary film, uh, Eugene O'Neill, one of my absolute favorites is his Andy Warhol documentary. I went into it absolutely loathing Andy Warhol, thinking he destroyed art. Now I think he probably is the most intelligent artist, maybe ever, in terms of understanding the art world. Um, you know, I love that he's called Drella, because there is a Cinderella component and there is a Dracula component. How do you tell what a, what a work of art, you know, what its value is? What, what can you sell it for? <laughs> you know, who's more responsible for um, there never being another generation that will spend time in a museum without looking at a masterpiece saying, how much is that, Daddy? Um, that's all Warhol. You know, he created the world that we're, we're in. So ruminating on that, um, along with all of these other subjects, I mean, one of my absolute favorites, Into the Deep, America Wailing in the World from 2010, is an exploration of the whaling industry in the U.S., which really allowed it to break free from Brit British control. And it also expanded our understanding of the world in unprecedented ways because you're exhausting the resource that you're extracting from the ocean. You need to go further and further and further. So uh, it looks into just such a bloody, dark... I mean, before oil, this is There Will Be Blood the century before with whaling, these, these roaming factories on the ocean just extracting such an incredible species and, uh, and using it to, to light up the world, you know, the, the most powerful form of oil to, for lamps and, and lubricant and stuff like that. I mean, Jesus, burrowing into the head of sperm whales to extract this stuff. And the other part of it is looking at Herman Melville, and what he was looking at with Moby Dick and Ahab and um, and America at that time, 
in, in a way that Americans wanted nothing to do with, you know, so much so that Melville dies basically penniless as a customs agent in New York and now is revered as having written the great, no the great American novel, arguably, or it's competing with that other novel that didn't sell at all, The Great Gatsby, which uh, subsequently took on quite a reevaluation. So Rick Burns has this incredible courage to look into both sides of, of what culminate into the American dream and, and inform it and animate it and coax it into both its dark and, and sort of transcendent expressions. So I, I, love, I love this guy's work. And um, it turned out he's just working and, and living very close, actually, to, to where I live in New York. So I just walked seven blocks and, and we just sat in his office and he showed me a little of his new film that he's working on about Dante. So, long preamble, I apologize, but I love this guy's work. I don't think I've watched, re-watched more documentaries from, from any filmmaker, more, more than Rick Burns. Um, and he, he was really lovely to speak with. So I hope you enjoy this week's guest, Rick Burns, our guest this week on Tourist Information. Thanks for listening. Um, so... Piano teacher who's married to a Hungarian pianist of some renown smiled at me immediately and said, You know what those two have in common? I said, No. And she said, The Hungarian minor chord, which was strenuously avoided mm. by composers at that time because it's not clear what the emotion is you're supposed to feel right. when you listen. It's probing, it's nebulous, it's right. amorphous. Right. Well, as you were saying about the wounding of America that you're delving into with these subjects. That's a feeling I, I get a lot is that there's a kind of Rorschach quality to mm -hmm. this where I need to rewatch your films more than almost any other documentarian I can think of. And they're always more enriching returning to them. Jesus Christ. But in a very dark way, also in a way that I, I am nervous to introduce of it where I said to my wife, oh, the daughter party, you're going to, this is so amazing. And she goes, is this going to be yeah, like amazing? I want that, yeah. <laughs> Like I need that. <laughs> yeah. But but I just wonder like what is it what is it about I mean let's go with Coney Island, for example, because now where the number one aspiration of young people is to be famous. Mm -hmm. Is sort of be to be a performer in right. in a way on American Idol or right. everything has become kind of Coney Island in society mm -hmm. in terms of just Leisure is the dominant theme of our lives right. in many ways. I mean, I think, I think one thing that what, what was really drawn to the incredible Dutch architect Rem Koolhaas. Huh. I really recommend you deal if you know, don't know him. I don't. I don't. K-O-O-L-H-A-A-S. Rem, first name R-E-M. It's getting up there now. I don't know him personally. I've seen him speak, but I don't. he wrote an incredible book, Delirious New York. And that's really the reason why I did the film um, more than anything else. Huh. Um, and he, in his opening chapter of this extraordinarily illustrated, absolutely brilliant, idiosyncratic book, um, you know, he goes down, so to speak, to Coney Island, you know, at this particular moment from the 1890s into the first decade of the 20th century, when mass culture is being invented. Right. 
I mean, before then, what you had is you had like, you know, and specifically on Coney Island, like on the western end of the island, it was like Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. It was really low life and nothing was built. And there was a lot of, you know, drugs, alcohol, crime, prostitution. Um, and on the eastern end of the island were these kind of great, great hotels for the super rich. Right. And then in the middle was this kind of no person's land. And that's where the parks began. And the idea was like, you know, that George Tillyou, who started the first of the big parks there, um, you know, there were already lots of entertainment there, sort of saw it as like, this could appeal to working class people, to middle class people, to upper class people, and it would be all sorts of things from rides to food to games and stuff like that. It would be not, um, you know, there would be nothing um, obscene about it. There would be nothing like low about it. But there wouldn't be anything too high about it either. It would be like, and people came because there were like freak shows and there were rides and there was this. And it was like, you know, as one person put it, you know, it, it was a magazine of everything that could happen that you could sort of see and feel. Right. And it became really ground zero of mass culture. Right. Mass in the sense that you know, like Disneyland, which overtook it long, long after, you know, it's for everybody. So mass in that sense. Um, also mass in terms of its content. It's kind of a view of the whole world. Right. You know, um, and it really, really caught on. I mean, you can go to places in Italy and you'll see Luna Park amusement park. Luna Park was the second of the two parks. Mm -hmm. Steeplechase Park, Luna Park, and then Dreamland. Um, and Luna Park, you know, kind of, it had its own trouble and burned down in a fire in 1944. Um, Steeplechase kind of hung on. Dreamland had burned down in 1911 in this kind of, for us, kind of apocalyptic climatic moment in, in the history of Coney Island because by that time then, it was on the map and the engine of mass culture was going. And of course it included everything, it included movies, you know, there little Nickelodeon, there's like movie houses there. I mean, everything was there. And I think that the thesis of the film, I don't think, I know that the thesis of the film was that the energy that was unleashed was so strong. That the only analogies to it were electricity and fire. <laughs> yeah. And that it was incredibly creative. Rem Coolhouse pointed out, and this is one of the things that drew me to it, that if you were like out to sea south off Cody Island in like 1910, you would be looking at what looked like the skyline of Manhattan, these lit towers. But those towers didn't exist yet. There wasn't yet, you know, a skyline of Manhattan. So it was an anticipatory dry run for the creation of this completely created world, Manhattan. Right. Nothing, the park's artificial. Everything's man-made. And that Coney Island was the kind of the laboratory in which this idea of a completely human manufactured place of artifice 
would come about. And so once they got that on the drawing board, then they took it north to Manhattan. So that's Rem Cool House's like brilliant, you know, as Paul Goldberg has said in a quote Cool House put on his book, if only it were true. Oh. You know, I mean, but it's a beautiful, beautiful idea. And that the forces that were unleashed were really strong. And so they could like create towers of light in this kind of miniature, you know, anticipatory way, because they weren't as tall as the skyscrapers, but nevertheless, they looked like that when you're out to sea. And was dazzling to go down Surf Avenue, see these things. But it was also electricity. And when Dreamland burned down, you know, a wire got loose, the fire got started from electricity and it burned it down. So you had this tremendous, you know, topsy, electrocuted. You know, so whether it's an accident or an intention, you know, the deployment of this force is something that human beings like to be in, in the midst of. It illuminates and electrifies and, you know, but it's also fucking dangerous as hell. Yeah. yeah. And that sense of its how vaultingly dangerous and creative, destructive and illuminating it could be, was something that then got kind of tamed. So when you ask most people who know anything about Coney Island, say, what's Coney Island? They go like, oh, it's like five million people at the beach. That's what came later. Right. A kind of an easygoing horizontality as opposed to an extremely dangerous verticality. Huh. And, and even, you know, the mass, the purveyors and creators and custodians of mass culture afterwards had a tamer version of it, culminating, say, in Disney, who really saw, here's how we can put together, you know, film and park and, you know, so Disneyland, you know, and Disney movies and, you know, sort of become a brand which have their unconscious, and this was definitely the way Rem Koolhaas would talk about it, you know, the unspoken unconscious of mass culture is happening there at Coney Island, you know, and it goes on to be something which we live in to this day. Right. Um, and I don't know what it is about being I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of older and oldest siblings who are drawn to extremely dark things. But, I, you know, something about... I don't know what it is just to be... I know we're a large, we're not a minority, we're a large cohort of people who... You know, I don't want to say wallow in the darkness because that's not really, it's not really wallowing, but it's sort of, I think it's a strong sense of vulnerability and susceptibility. There's going to be no triumphing over this. Oh. That's not what's going to happen. It, there's a lot of randomness. There's a lot of power playing. And how it works out is... It may not work out so good. And it, you know, or well, as one is meant to say. And you could be one of the beautiful poet. It's a piece of poetry that it's like, it's astonishing that I'm part. 87 people take 
you know, Hastings cut off in what's the, called the Donner Party. Half of them live, half of them die. One of them opens up a restaurant. One of them opens up a restaurant. Well, but do you think, I mean, I'm not trying to be too reductive about this, but I, I do wonder, like you say, we're the you know, young or youngest in our family. Mm -hmm. um, I was definitely internalizing a lot of stuff with my parents that I didn't understand. Right. But looking back on it, like, I, I remember my dad had a, a print of um, Jures, the, the Night, the Devil, and mm -hmm. Death right. on his wall. Right. It's dark. Right. And it's interesting, too, because you have famous German painting it, but he's actually of Hungarian descent. My dad's mm -hmm. of German descent. My mm -hmm. mom's Hungarian. So right. I thought there's a weird mix right mix there. Right there and he right. didn't know the background. Just the image spoke to him. It looks like Abraham Lincoln, right. who's marching in in the forest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit like your Dante at right. the beginning. Right. And I said, this is the only work of art you have in your office, and your office is depressing. Right. It's dark. And <laughs> some of my first memories were me having to go into work with him downtown. Mm -hmm. It was scary for me to be downtown. Right. Still, the that area of Vancouver is kind of famous mm. globally for its level of neglect right. and IV drug use and HIV previously yeah. and stuff. It's a heavy place, right. but not an American version of heavy where it's ultra violent. It's mm -hmm. just heavy in terms of neglect. Right, right. They're not really humans here. Just let them shoot up openly right. and, and all of that. It's a lot to see as a kid. My dad made me see it, and he said, "Well, what I see this." this engraving as is, is sort of my role as a child protection lawyer. <laughs> I'm going into a forest where I know I'm not going to come out okay. And right. I know that I can't save the people I want to save, but I'm their last defender. Oh my God. That's so moving, Brent. And I said, bless, your, bless your dad. I said, that's how you see this? And you go to work every, no wonder you're drinking. No wonder you're right. smoking three packs a day. Right. And I said, well, what is the law? This is me as a three-year-old. What does it mean? And he said, it's the illusion of order in total chaos. Right. That's right. That's but right. what's the alternative? Why do we have a jury of our peers instead of some grand, wise person? Because it's the best we have. Right. It's like the equivalent of Marlowe on his way up the river. You know, rivets. Right. They're looking for rivets that'll hold the ships together. Right. He's like, rivets. That's going to hold it together. Long before it gets to Kurtz. Conrad's just so, yeah. You know, he totally gets, you know, this thing like this ironic appeal of something which might hold it together, not. <laughs> well, and, and so I just wonder with Coney Island, with you having this perverse relationship with your mother's mortality so mm -hmm. early, mm -hmm. and your dad's. Click, like you point out the two things, like mental instability and brilliance at the same time. Is it going to be realized? Is this going to be resolved? Right. You know, we didn't find out she was can had cancer until I was five and Ken was six and a half when she went in in 1960 for this really, really like, on the one hand, cutting edge, but on the other hand, totally draconian kind of like, you know, shot in the dark. Thing they did for people with metastasized cancer, which is they took out your pituitary gland by drilling all in your head and take plucking it out because they knew, well, hormone control, you know, let's take that out and it'll reduce, it'll, you know, the, the engine of cell metabolism will decrease. And they were right. 
but nevertheless, you know, when that, when she went in for that operation, the idea was like, she might not be coming back. So they gathered Kenny and Ricky together. My dad and mom and said to us, you know, your mom has cancer and she might not live. And, you know, she did, she came back, um, quite some time later, six weeks later with a shaved head and a hole in her head and, you know, her hair never grew back the same way and it was a different color. And she was nevertheless, you know, she was not daunted. I mean, she was, didn't want to die, um, but she was strong and warm really right up until the very end. And we found this letter from somebody who she shared a hospital room with um, at the University of Michigan Hospital, um, who, and the woman she was sharing it with had a curable form of cancer. And my mom did not. Um, you know, she'd had her breast removed in 1958 and, and it metastasized to her lungs and liver and everywhere and killed her in 1965. So this is probably 1964. You know, she's in and out of the hospitals, and one of the main reasons we moved to Ann Arbor was hospitals. Um, and so this woman had written this thing to my mom, whose name was Lila, to say that, like, every morning when my mom would wake up, she'd go out on her little, little balcony off their shared room, semi-private room, and sing, to, sing in this kind of, like, out-of-tune voice. And this woman who had nowhere near as drastic a medical situation described listening to my mother singing in her off-key voice every morning just going, wow, how does, how does someone in that situation, a situation I'm near to but not at, get up in the morning and sing? And then she said that the strength that she derived from that was so huge and so meaningful. And I think that that was the strength that my brother and I absorbed through her personality during the time we had with her, Ken, you know, 11 and a half years and me 10. Um, and that though she was the one who died, all of the strength came from that. Um, I think in much of the you know, intellectual resources came from them both. Um, but it was, you know, it, it was really that, but also just the strongest understanding that things don't necessarily work out. Um, and, you know, for anybody who's, and everybody who's had a lost a, parent when they're a child will recognize this. You know, the night before my mom died, she'd been in the hospital. My dad stupidly would not let us visit her. I don't think, you know, in the final days, we very, were there lots of times, but not in these final days. And the night before she died, we were sent over to our friend's house a block away. And then, uh, my dad came back from the hospital and said, sat Kenny and Kenny me down 
um, in the upper second floor bedroom room of our friends, the Wolf's house, and said, our mommies, our mommies died. And then we went back to our little house, the smallest, poorest house in New York. I mean, really, and I was wealthy college town. You know, we lived at the end of this little court called the Wellington Court, you know, kind of a dead end court. You know, it had three little tiny houses in it, and ours was one of these three tiny houses. It cost like $4,000. Um, very tiny house. Um, and I know Ken feels the same way. It's like, we're. What did we feel that moment? I can remember going through the gate where you got into the end of the dead end thing. I can remember going to the house. I can remember my dad saying that. I cannot remember any feelings I had inside that. And, you know, a long time later, when I read Gravity's Rainbow, I immediately recognized it. It's a V2 rocket. It's moving faster than the speed of sound. It explodes, and before you hear the explosion, the explosion's gone. That's what happens. And so all this damage takes place in a silence created by the infinite speed and her horror of what's being taken in. And then you kind of like the debris, which is something called you, <laughs> gathers itself around in a new mound and you spend the rest of your life dealing with it. That's the way, that's the way everybody who, I just know that that's just very, very common experience. Um, and there's really, in that sense, there are two kinds of people in the world. People who were damaged like that, inadvertently. Yeah. Nobody's to blame. Um, you know, and as damage goes, you know, you know, to be the victim of predation, you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse, you know, yeah. that's going to be worse because, you know, there is nobody to blame and there's no, nobody did this. So there's no, um, there's no evil involved. But that yeah. itself is its own. It leaves a hole the size of that evil that does, you know, doesn't exist in a way it's, in your life. It's, you know, it's funny because like, you know, I'm 68. Um, I'm completely not just conscious of, I am that person sitting here right now. I don't feel like over it. It doesn't, it's just funny. It's just one of those things that's permanently, um, permanently shaping. Um, and if Ken were here, he'd say this. He'd say his version of the same thing. Um, and uh, so we have enormous pride and love for our mom in our mom. That's quite a gift, though. What a gift, Brad. I mean, really.
It's such a gift. It is a really huge gift. So I, I, just as you're talking about this, I, I remember um, my first exposure to death was, was not my mom, yeah. um, but it was my grandmother who I just, uh, my only memories of her, like my dad, she was a compulsive reader and right. smoker. Right. And she would sit there smoking and reading and would look over the page at me. And I just thought, I'm so glad at three that I've just met this person. I can't wait to get to know her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's so kind and yeah. fun and interesting yeah. and has this connection to who my dad is, too. I can see her in him, right, right, right. but he has his own version of right. it. And then at four, the diagnosis. And then the hospitalization, mm. and then the fading, and then the emergency flight. Was it cancer? It was cancer yeah. from the small town to Vancouver to the major hospital where I was born. Right. And now she's going to go there to die. She was probably born in the 20s? Yeah, 1916. 1916, yeah. yeah. And uh, roughly my parents' generation. Yeah. And for the last visit, I remember it very distinctly because I was, was five. And it was right around um, St. Patrick's Day. So I knew McDonald's had a, a St. Patrick's mint flavored milkshake or something, which is right, a right. five-year-old was a revelation. <laughs> and we're waiting outside the hospital, but I I was not overwhelmed by it. I've never liked hospitals. I've always found the smell in there terrible mm. in the same awful way. Right. Um, but my dad, before we walked in, just said, can we talk for a second? I said, yes. And he knelt down and he just said, your grandmother is going to be jaundiced from what's right. going on right. in her system. I said, what's jaundice? She's going to be yellow. You love to explain words right. to me, and I love to learn new words. Listen. And she, she's going, she's got a lot of drugs in her system to help right. take away the pain. And she's got some cords or stuff right. in her nose to help her to breathe. Right. She's going to be in a daze. It might not really be her. Right. So just prepare that this is going to be the last time you're going to see her alive. Right. And I remember just being enraged at him. I've just met this person. Right. You can't take you can't her away take her from away. me. And you, why are you not lying to me right. that she's going to go to heaven or all of this other right. stuff to offer a bomb to it? And then it, it kind of at the same time occurred to me something else was coming up, which is why is he trusting that I'll be okay? Yeah, yeah, which is huge, Brandon. So what a yeah. So I don't I don't know how I will inevitably confront if I, I would like to have children, when or if I have children, if I'm lucky to have that, how I would confront death in this way. Because yeah, yeah. I don't think I would have the strength to do that. You know. <laughs> the thing about all this stuff is that And the proof is in the pudding, and yeah. these are all things that are not about choice, but about how one responds. Yeah. And uh, the, the anticipation, will I, will I have that strength, will I, you know. It's really, you know, I have come from a family of atheists, you know, on my dad's side, scientists, going back to some ways, and so there's no, but, you know, I find myself not increasingly religious by any means, Dante notwithstanding, um, but, um, 
you know, sufficient into the day, you know, mm-hmm. um, or you just, you confront, you take it as it comes. And it was a beautiful thing your dad did. And it reminds me of the moment in Michael Clayton where they come out of the house, um, Michael Clayton and his son, and his they've just meet the younger brother, Timmy, who's had a wreck at the bar and caused all this trouble for Michael, so it's one of the stories. And Timmy was an alcoholic and a drug abuser. He's showing up late to your older brother's oldest brother's birthday party. Older brother's a cop, ten officer. Michael's leaving early to get back to work and try to troubleshoot for himself and a million other people. And his alcoholic brother Timmy comes up and sees his nephew and his brother. And Michael basically just says, fuck off. They get in the car and Michael Clayton, George Clayton turns to his son. They start driving down the street. You can see that his son's really wide-eyed and upset. And Michael Clayton stops the car and turns to his son and says, says, you're you're never going to be like that. That's never going to happen to you. I know. That's never going to happen to you, you know? And it's enormously meaningful to his son. Um, and there's an enormous amount of like adult, like trafficking in like, here's your alcoholic. I mean, his son's like, I don't know, seven, six, yeah. you know, trafficking in like the disarray and the catastrophe, which is Timmy's life and you know that he trusts his son just to kind of let's let's call a spade a spade that's your uncle tim he is what he is there's nothing you are not going to be like that and i don't know it's just such an incredibly beautiful moment what's a perfect movie um, it reminds me a bit about like no country for old men that last oh, dream sequence oh my god because there's an element of, of you know what we're right that's right yeah <laughs> carrying the fire carrying the fire yeah. into the darkness yeah so you can find me yeah it just gutted me i mean i i call it my dad so... right after i saw that just to say yeah. is this our lives you and i it is and it kind of Kind of is. I mean, we can think otherwise, but <laughs> that's just a way of getting through the day, which we all do, because um, otherwise it's a much easier road. <laughs> But once you sit down and say, so what's really happening here? You know, otherwise becomes just a way of getting through the day. And But I, I do find, though, that, I mean, like Coney Island thing, I feel is sort of like we're talking about is trusting children right. to, we are fucking weird out here. Right. You know, like sort of, or Alice in Wonderland, I remember somebody said, it's Lewis Carroll offering a hand to a child right. to say, You're, you are growing up. Mm-hmm. All this shooting up and shrinking and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I think Virginia Woolf said, like, nobody had a clear memory of childhood that remotely could compete with Lewis Carroll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody. Right. And I remember reading that where somebody gets it. Right. Somebody gets how crazy right. the how world right. feels to right. us. Yeah. Where you can legally beat us because right. we're a child right. in your right. society. Right. But you can't beat each other, but we're okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I just felt like with what you were saying with Coney Island in some respects, like as you said, yeah, there's electricity, there's fire. We're looking at the future and it's exciting. Um, the first time I ever, I was six years old when I went to Disneyland and I was programmed to think you are required by childhood law to love Disney. Yeah, right. You yeah. must go. Yeah, yeah. And the moment I went there, it was this fascinating demarcation for me of Certainly when you go to McDonald's as a kid, because mm-hmm. um, it's so programmed to kids, right? right. The toys, the time with movies, right. uh, the food, what, everything else tastes awful compared right. to McDonald's sort of thing. Right. Um, and suddenly you start noticing the people who are in McDonald's who are not just for seven bucks buying happiness from a meal, right. but it's the only meal they can afford. Right. They have yeah. nowhere else to go. Right. And it becomes this sort of way station for people where life didn't work out right you're totally. like where did they come from right right, right. and same with yeah, yeah. The, the effect that like a place like the the derivatives of coney island like right. the theme parks that are in every city right or will wander through if it's a town right when do they go from something that's really fun you look forward to to jesus that's really creepy right and who the hell are the people working in these places bringing it to us like what right. kind of person would have this be their whole life right Whereas before it was just, they're, they're fun people that just live in fun all the time, right? right. Um, so I just, I, I wonder how you you managed to simultaneously get into the darkness with a lot of courage, but also bring out some hope and, and I think humor. I wasn't sure before we met. Well, one, yeah, right. But there is, there's a dark sense of humor there that um, all of my Eastern European relatives would appreciate in terms of... Um, I mean, the Coney Island stuff, but certainly the Andy Warhol. I mean, I, I was just thinking with a theme park like that, I feel like who would not have had an amazing formative time that would shape incredible things oh in God. their future? Oh, my God. Whereas my feeling from Disneyland was, I can't believe how expensive this is. And I was yeah. six. Right. right. I wasn't even aware of prices. I didn't pay for anything. But I, that's where I remember being aware of it. This should not cost this much. <laughs> Why is it $45 to enter this place? Yeah. That's the price to, to tap into the, the right. mecca of it, innocence? Right. It's, it's really, there's, yeah, the price tag is, is really, and it is, it's not, it's not, it's funny, it's, it's darkness is sort of on its sleeve. You know, as you're saying, sort of. Like Michael Jackson. I mean, I think he's like the ambassador of all of this. All of it, yeah. I mean, I grew up literally thinking, I didn't know what plastic surgery was. I saw him when I was four. I thought, is this what's in store for me as I get older? It's such a, it's amazing. And he should. There's a musical now. I mean, it's just, put put it to rest. (laughs) Put it to rest. (laughs) What is is ultimately such a painfully sad story. Um, I think that there's like a, I don't know. Not so much a virtue as these. The darkness is real, 
you know, it didn't kill Cormac McCarthy. Um, you know, it gets us all in the end. Or as my friend, the guy who introduced me to Rayas said, you know, nobody gets out alive. Um, yeah. But, you know, there's a tremendous virtuousness and it's incredibly helpful to, in some way, try to come to terms with the darkness, um, come to terms with it, experiencing it, um, getting some, some part of it. You know. And I think that that, you know, when we did this film about Eugene O'Neill, Jason Robards was dying. We interviewed him for it. And um, yeah, right around the time of Magnolia when he's playing, right, right, he was playing a dying man. Yeah, right, right. So he's gaunt, and you know he's always like you know he's like brachycephalic. You're brachycephalic. He's dodecacephalic. I'm more dodecacephalic. You know where you oh, like the, your head is either greater than yeah. or less than you know the width of your, um, and or two thirds of the width. So Jason was always like ma massively dodecacephalic, yeah. but then in illness and approaching death, really. So he's just yeah. said kind of like, you know, almost. Um, and he was still so wide-eyed and so alive in this incredibly beautiful way. Um, and he said, you know, talking about Eugene O'Neill, in a moment we ended up using at the very end of the film, um, talking about something that Ralph Richardson had said, which is that at the core, it's the writer, the actor, and the audience where they join. And that's what you're trying to create, that moment of joining. And in this case, you don't have actors so much, it's a film. Yeah, yeah. But he said, Richardson said, and it's, it's, our, it's our time to dream. Mm -hmm. And whatever that thing is, that is, like we're totally aware of the difference between sleep dreaming and this quality that you immediately gravitated to in Harold Budd's music. You're awake, you know you're not sleeping. But the idea that you go like it's dreamlike, of course. And I think that that's what, <laughs> this is a preposterous way to do it. I certainly think that that's what film is. Film is waking, dreaming dreaming while you're awake. And what that is, is it's creating a flow of light and sound that on the one hand is very, very alert to everything conscious. There's an interviewee and you know she's speaking and you can see the room she's sitting in and imagine the rest of the house that you're not seeing. That's all conscious stuff. But, but maybe it's part of a flow 
in which as conscious as you are of things, you're also aware that there's an immense amount going on outside of range. Any film that's actually working is only interested in the stuff that's conscious and in range, insofar as it's bringing you into touch with stuff that's unconscious and out of range. Right. And the minute it stops doing that, it becomes like a Magritte painting where a man smoking a pipe is described as, here's a painting of a man smoking a pipe. Where all you're getting is some reaffirmation of what you already know is exactly there. If that's all a film is doing, yeah. you turn off even before you get there. But what you want to do is you want to be, you don't, want, you don't even know you want to. That flow of getting uh, pulled into an experience in which, to be sure, you're understanding stuff, but it's also bringing you into touch with other things. Yeah. That's what waking dreaming is, that in touch with other things. And But that dialectic is a major theme of your work, because I can immediately think of, um, like, Into the Deep, mm -hmm. that line that we are extracting from the darkness these whales in order to give ourselves <laughs> light. <laughs> I, I can't think of a more appropriate metaphor for sort of what these what these works at least mean for me, where I I, I agree that like the Donner Party makes Sophie's Choice look like a comedy, <laughs> right? Right. I mean, right. why why just worry about one kid when you can have half of them yeah, worrying about really. this? But but there is something really life affirming at the same time. Like as we you were talking about Topsy, mm -hmm. I was thinking about they've just. They're studying animals in the Serengeti and various regions of the African continent. And you know the one sound that all animals at the top of the food chain will not even make any effort to protect their their little ones from? The one voice where they just need just get the hell out of Dodge mm. sort of thing that terrifies them more than anything else. The human voice. Mm. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. And we're killing 92 billion animals per year to eat. But I, I think that how many of them have I had to watch for any of the meals that I consume? None, none, none. Zero. Could could I do it to kill them? I was just hungry enough. I could, but I don't want to. Right. But no, it's really. And when I was thinking about that, Into the Deep, which is the most recent one of your films that I've seen, and and it's another one that there's so much to unpack that I will never finish in unpacking, but I don't, it's not easy for me to return mm. to. It's not a, an easy watch. Right. Um, but I'm also Melville. I feel the same way. I, I not long ago I was in Cape Cod and right. I went to some, there was like a whaling museum around there in New Bedford. Yeah. yeah. And I also went whale watching for the first time during COVID. That was our first getaway after, um, what a lovely thing to do. It was. Yeah. And there was a woman there. Who, who joined the, the expedition, who was covered in whale ornaments and souvenirs, <laughs> and she had her own stool right. to do it. She knew everybody by name. Look, she was doing it four or five times a day, sort of thing. But it was such a moving experience mm. to see these things. And I just thought, wow, to go from, I've heard this with trophy hunting, to go from, my God, that yeah. is a whale, right. to, 
I wonder how easy it would be to kill that fucking thing. How do we go there? But we always do. So I wonder just when, with something like the whaling theme, and then the Melville backstory. I love mm-hmm. the idea that the book doesn't sell at all. I know. Totally. Total, total, total failure. What is he, an immigration official or something? He yeah, customs officer. Customs, customs yeah. officer. Yeah. yeah. Um, why do these things take a while for America to kind of embrace when they, it seems like it's too close to home? I think it was a combination. I think for Melville. I guess Gatsby's the same way. Took that a while to Yeah, it. it did better than it did better than the nothing that that uh, that Moby Dick did. You know, I think that there's two or three things that are happening at once with Melville. Um, you know, one is that what had been the frontier for America from the beginning, which was the sea. Yeah. had, while he wrote it, you know, roughly people like the Donner Party were going west, and suddenly the entire American, you know, orientation and uh, perspective shifted to going west, of which approximately there is nothing in this. So it had this kind of like accelerated, premature, you know, obsolescence in it. Mm. Uh, right. Because he just written about this thing. A, B, it was really dark. Um, and not only dark, but difficult. Yeah. Um, and as the scholar at Columbia named Ed Mendelssohn wrote in the 19... 19- 80s, maybe, maybe as early as late 70s. Incredible essay, scholarly essay called Encyclopedic Narratives, in which it's the thesis of this, it's not a monograph, even just a sort of essay, was that there was, as Mendelssohn put it, a genre of literature that he felt had been unidentified and unexplored as such, which was what he called encyclopedic narratives, which, um, are narratives which feel compelled to include everything in them, Hmm. Um, to um, also they happen invariably, there are not many of them, Dante was the first one he identified, um, specifically the comedy, which try to embrace everything that's known and understood, you know, in the world at that time, because there's some enormous need to do a kind of a total reconsideration. Mm. You can't leave anything out because everything is both up for grabs and in terrible danger. And so you create these encyclopedic narratives as a way of trying to metabolize everything in order to try to figure out how you, how, what kind of way through it there might be. Um, and they have, they tend to happen early in the development of national or even regional cultures as Dante did with the divine comedy as Melville for American culture. It's not like, not coming like late in the culture's development. It's coming, 
very, very early in its self-conscious self-discovery, um, that they are often overlooked, not Dante, but Melville comes with the territory of being in almost invariably dark, um, you know, and hyper-conscious of the real trouble. Yeah. Like, we're in trouble here. We are like 27 people of mixed races on a ship 3,000 miles off the coast chasing the largest creature in the world to destroy it. And at the same time, we are in incredible danger ourselves. Like, as if that's not a metaphor for the world. Um, and as an industry, we, will, we know we're going to wipe them off. Absolutely. And not only that, right, we, he knows it's, it, is, it is a mathematical certainty, as Melville is writing it, and he knows it. That yeah. we've just created, we've created a limb, we're walking out on it, we can hear it cracking, and it's going to break. Yeah. To the detriment of an entirely, you know, soon to be extinct population of whales. And what are we doing? You know, how, do, how does this work? And, why and are so we it looking took, at it as a profit issue above all. So, you know, fast forward then to 30 years after Melville's gone, and it's now like, the turn of the 1920s and people begin to just rediscover and go like, holy freaking moly. You mean like just, you know, a decade before the civil war. Yeah. Somebody wrote this. Yeah. Huh. You know, in which sure there's cytology, which is like, ugh, you know, but that's because, you can't sustain. I mean, the Shakespearean altitudes to which the language rises at the moments of greatest crisis or at the moments of unbelievable tranquility. Like, you know, we had the thing in the film, which is the most transcendental moment of it, where Ishmael. They can see through the translucent water, the nursing yeah. baby whales. And that, as Melville describes it, they're looking at us, but not at us, you know, as if we were but a piece of gulf weed in their gaze. You know, I mean, that... What did it take to notice that and think that way and then articulate it? Um, and to sort of understand the relationship between, like, there's the whales from our point of view and there are we from their point of view. Yeah. And to try to actually articulate what that point of view would be. Right. I mean, Bryn, that's just, you know, so that's not one of these, I mean, the translucent, indescribable beauty of the observation and the power of it yeah. is just, you know, it, you know, it's every once in a while something's written in which it takes a culture a long time to catch up with it. And it took 
a long time to catch up with it. It wasn't just bad luck on her mind's part. Um, He just didn't, he knew he had it in him, but what he didn't understand is that what he had in him was something that would require decades of kind of a cultural acculturation to the world that that culture was making. It couldn't take it in. It literally couldn't take it in when it was written. You know, and there it was. It was published, 1850. You could have taken it in. Interesting. Yeah. Hold on just one second. I've just been gabbling at such incredible garrulous length. I apologize for it. No, no, no. It's exactly... It's exactly what I find most enjoyable, like, like these kind of exchanges. And I'm just thinking about what you were saying. It kind of reminded me, there was a line that Hemingway had, who doesn't resonate for me very much anymore, but he did when I was like a teenager quite a bit. And it's in one of his short stories, which is t- to me him at his best as mm-hmm. an artist. And he said, if you shot one bird out of the sky, you've shot all of them. And I thought, you have that recognition. I think he was like 35 when he mm-hmm. wrote that story. Mm-hmm. Why do you keep doing it for pleasure mm-hmm. if it's that monotonous? Right. And if you flip it, if you adopt any kind of animal, that especially if they've been abused, and I've had a few right. of those, and you love them into being, each one is unique. Totally. Totally. Yeah. So what's the what's the cost then of not wanting to invest in life as opposed to investing your energy in the pleasure of a monotonous pursuit, like just senseless murder. Right. And I think the trade-off is if I invest in something that's alive and it creates something that's unique out of our relationship mm-hmm. is I lose it and there's nothing I can do to stop losing. It. So at least I have the illusion if I'm killing things. Yeah, right. I think it does. <laughs> yeah. Well, you prevent that, you know, you, you prevent that tragedy from occurring by, you know, and causing it to happen long before your attachment has occurred. Um, and, uh, and, and anyone who's lost a dog, say. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> we've had three dogs and each, you know, not surprisingly, each one of them has gotten old and Two, two of the three are gone. Now Fiona is an eternally youthful, 12-year-old, you know, the end is nigh. <laughs> and uh, I mean, not she's not dying, but what happened, I just, we just, you know, you just, you get as close as possible to their the uniqueness of their personality and treasure it and love it and, you know um, you know I mean kindness is its own reward and its own pun- punishment and not punishment it, it just kindness will inevitably bring pain but um, in its absence is that what you mean well when when anything that's beloved is gone. Yeah. The, the pain of it is, yeah. And uh, in its absence. Um, but that, 
I mean, kindness in its, you know, in every sense of it, of the word, um, including a recognition of solidarity with anything living. Yeah. <laughs> Not just your own kind, but, you know, that. That is, that, that is essentially the, the universal religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, there are, you know, at the end, you know, when Dante gets out to the far reaches of heaven. You know, he's now been taken down to hell with Virgil, who takes him up Mount Purgatory, up to the near top, but Virgil can't go into the garden of earthly paradise at the top, the garden of Eden. And that's where Dante is many years after her death, meets Beatrice again, Mm. this woman he's loved since he was nine, whom he never had a relationship with except to see on the street, who died when she when they were both twenty-four. He was actually twenty-five, she was twenty-four. Um, and which his work was all about Beatrice. Huh. So it's Beatrice who takes him from the top of purgatory and then becomes his guide as the god of the spirits of heaven. And when they get out to the farthest most reaches, essentially as close to God as Dante's going to be able to get before dying. Beatrice leaves him again and she departs. She goes back up to heaven, to the furthest heaven, the Empyrean, where the fire and the rose, as Eliot said, are one. There's a kind of a huge rose um, petal for each soul. And the Empyrean means the thing on fire, mm. empired. And so he's now seeing the shape of everything from its outermost, near its outermost sphere. And he, in the last lines of the poem, he describes how what he's seeing as the kind of immense infinitely beautiful rotation of spheres of light and that he's seeing the love that moves the sun and other stars that the whole thing is ultimately its motive force and not just as a metaphor right is love and you know if you were not religious like i'm not you have to say there is something called love. You can feel it, you can define it, you can do it. But, you know, kindness, you know, you know this sort of a not entirely self-interested investment in something outside yourself. Someone you love, a cat, your child, whatever. Um, and that that, you know, even for those of us who don't believe in a supreme being, 
That's a real thing. Where'd that come from? Just like, where did your consciousness come from? You know, if Descartes thought it came from like through your pituitary gland, like a lot of, um, but still was like God given. I don't believe that. I believe it comes, how amazing that consciousness comes out of molecular atomic behavior. How could that be that there's someone named Brent who wakes up each morning and now is sitting here, sorry for you, you know, who's got this consciousness and that that's created by it, you know, as well as the feelings that you have and sentience and stuff like that. You know, that's love and that's really, you know, if you had, like I've said this, and I feel it really deeply, that the summation of what Dante is, <laughs> which now like every Dante scholar in the world can go like, yeah, we knew he was the last person to actually get his hands on this. this what, a, what a disaster. Um, the last lyric that the Beatles wrote, the last, last, the love you make is, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Now tell me, like, Paul, who undoubtedly wrote that. It's so simple. It's so banal. It's so perfectly balanced. It's the last thing they wrote. And all of us have it in our heart. We can hear the piano chords, you know, and we can hear then out of nowhere. It's really just two lines. Mm -hmm. The end. You know, and then there's that little ditty thing, kind of, you know, box hall kind of thing that happens, which is not something that they wrote. But, you know, I imagine she's a pretty nice girl, but she doesn't have a lot to say. Um, but that... That's worth a lot. <laughs> and, you know, I have to say that the two things that I've been most drawn to that are not on balance more darker than they are light are Dante, who, you know, really goes, he, he, he's, a, he's a switch hitter, goes both ways. <laughs> but New York. Huh. Huh. You know, New York is its own divine comedy. Yeah. Its own hell, its own purgatory, and its own attempts at some kind of meaningful transcendence of the worst. And, you know, that's, you know, <laughs> like it's the least dark, I mean, it's now seven and a half hours long. We're working on two more two-hour films about New York of the 21st century. The last 20 years turned out to be the hardest and most traumatizing 20 years in the city's history. How do you get over 9-11? How do you get over a near depression-like physical crisis? Oh, gee, Superstorm Sandy hits. You know, we're like sitting fucking ducks here for climate change. A, 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 a pandemic? Yeah. The worst pandemic in 100 years? So, and we're not alone in that. No. You know, everybody's an equal opportunity set of disasters. But the 
you know, nevertheless, there's arguably no place in this part of the world, and I mean the East Coast, I mean like in what we call America, that has risen to the occasion very frequently disastrous occasions and very frequently disasters wholly or partly of their own make of its own making mm. and gone you know what what would be the solution to this how do we create something you know and that's what has made new york for all the hellishness of it essentially still in the running to be a comedy mm. something which at least potentially is going to work out okay and that's why you know its story is not it's not a donner party story for all the hell and all the bloodshed um and, and it is as many people feel it's an example as many urban places are of like the worst and the best but also like the hope it's like the hope of the world is not in Alabama. And I don't say anything against Alabamians. But it's if Alabama is going to solve its problems, it's going to have to figure out how to do some of the same things New York's been trying to do. Right. With only middling success. So it's not, there's not going to be a solution that's going to, you know, isolationism, white supremacy, uh, you know, de, you know, increased racial segregation, taking away from the multifariousness of a world that's just kind of implicitly multifarious. But even on the other side, it's kind of interesting with this Gaza stuff that you're seeing pro-Palestine, Palestine marches in yeah. Times Square that are dividing liberals. Yeah, totally. You know, so like I, well, understandably. I mean, it's very hard to like, I mean... I just mean the opening of your film with Dante could apply to us right now. With that absolutely. You know. That's it. We're, it's, uh, there's no question about it. You know, I mean, and it's every time is not equally lost, though that's probably truer than than not. But this time is extremely lost, as was, for example, 1300, if you were trying to find your way, not just because you were in exile, on the contrary. I mean, Dante knew things were in terrible, terrible, terrible shape. And we, you know, we look at this, you know, God bless Tom Friedman, you know, his piece today was like, you know, just give you some kind of, you know, one can only hope that that there is a, a massive ground, you know, invasion, which we, which will be, it'd be horrible for everybody. Um, and that, but it, it's just interesting. You say, I think it's so interesting. I, I will contend if I have children, um, I met my wife just before the pandemic, we mm -hmm. had a date. Our first date was a, a month before the pandemic, three blocks from the global epicenter where Jeez. bodies were being stabbed in, in Washington Queen. Heights. Oh, wow. Yeah. At New York Presbyterian yeah. Hospital. Jesus, right. Yeah. And date number four was moving in together in Connecticut. 
and I have no idea. Jesus Christ. So I was thinking, like, it's funny, because Inferno comes from this Italo Calvino, the last page of Invisible Cities, which is now being studied at universities right. for city planning. Right. And, you know, Marco Polo having a conversation with um, Kublai Khan. Right. Tell me about my empire, my dying empire, because right. I can't see it. I just stay here every day, right. here in the center. And in the last passages that deeply affected me, is a reference to Inferno, mm -hmm. which is you need to go out and see what is not Inferno, right? Of the Inferno, right? And give it room and give it space, right? And I always think about that as much as like Mr. Rogers, like inspired me by saying anything that depresses you, and so many, so much of world events depress the shit out of me. Not depressing me, just, I don't want just hopelessness. But look, looking for the helpers is a really, really good guide to getting right. inspired, to right. come back up, right. to want to participate. Right. Well, that's the thing. I mean, that wanting, you know, <laughs> however dark it is, you know, to still have skin in the game and to participate. I mean, that's the... That's the thing that anybody says, like, oh, well, she's so dark, or that's so dark, or his writing's so dark. You know what? They're participating. <laughs> they, 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 they're, they're, they're in passing. the game. Yeah. You know, and you might go, like, um, you know, at the, as the final pages or, you know, minutes of, you know, um, You know, the movie comes to an end and you're hearing like about riding through the darkness with your father and a little, carrying a little lighted fire, you know. But no matter how dark Cormac is, you know, he's, to I mean, he's totally, he's participating at the highest possible level. Yeah. And, you know, the road, I mean, come on. I mean, a complete, a world that's a complete Armageddon in which you situated the relationship between father and son and potential cannibals, um, you know, who have basically in a world in which survival is now predicated plausibly, but not, you know, not inescapably on the idea that you capture and murder other human beings for food. Um, it's just, it's just Dante's greed now down to the most basic level. And, you know, are you, as the child says, you know, are, you know, are we, are we one of the good ones? You know? And, you know, I think that Trying to make the distinction, trying to determine, are you one of the good ones? What would that be? What, what does that have to mean? Um, and or not? And you know, we look around so appalled. Like we definitely know that, like slaughtering and decapitating somebody in their kitchen that doesn't that's not a good one you got that one there um but you know in dante's hell 
people are, if they're familiar with it at all, which they're almost certainly not, they go like, well, there's circles of hell. And they may know they're not in circles of hell. But as Virgil explains to Dante, when they pause in the 11th canto, as they're about to go down further into the deeper circles of hell, that there's an order, there's an order of structure to this whole thing, hell, which is that up near the surface, the sins which are not vices which are not good, but they're not, they're the least bad, are sins of incontinence. Where you make the decision to be swept away by an appetite for sex, for food, for money, for possession. That's interesting. But you're not like, you're not hurting anybody. There might be people, collateral damage in your vicinity, but you're not hurting anybody. Then in the middle, with its own set of circles, are sins of violence. And this is where people commit violence against other people, violence against themselves, suicides, and violence against God and nature. But this violence is not actually predicated or stem from a desire to harm. It's just brute violence. It's not down at the bottom, taking up what are the eighth and ninth circles, but the eighth circle has 10 subdivisions and the ninth four. So it becomes, it's a more complicated moral geography. Um, than just nine circles, mm-hmm. or indeed than three larger ones, are sins of fraud. Huh. Where you use the thing which is most defining of who you are as a human being, your intellect and your rationality, to consciously purvey an untruth for your own interest. Those are the words. And that's why at the very bottom, then you have people who are, so everybody's sort of fraudulent down there at the bottom. But at the very bottom, you have people who have fraudulently betrayed people who they have tremendous bonds with, family members, colleagues, loved ones, etc. Which is why when you get down to the bottom of hell, it's not fiery, it's icy. It's like entropic, zero energy, no love. And you find the greatest fraudulent betrayers. And at the very bottom, the bottom are the very, very greatest fraudulent betrayers. One is Lucifer himself, who has betrayed God because he said he can't stand the idea that God is a creator and he, Lucifer, is not. So he's done everything he can to get as far away from God. So he's not being punished. He's just gotten as far away from the creator as he possibly can be. Mm. He's got three mouths, one out front and one on either side of his head. And he's chewing on three different figures, left and right, chewing from the 
feet out, so their heads are sticking out, are Brutus and Cassius, who betrayed Caesar. At oh. two Brute. You of all people are the person who stabbed him. And in his front mouth, head first. And they're being kind of gnawed on and kind of like the talons of Lucifer are kind of just sort of like just sort of repetitively ripping their flesh off and skin off is Judas who betrayed Jesus at, you know not at two brute but yeah. you know um, and they don't like Lucifer has no malignity in him that he doesn't notice Virgil and Dante. He doesn't threaten them. He's just sort of like gnawing and gnawing and gnawing in this infinite region of infinite cold in which he has three sets of wings. And every time he tries to kind of like move his wings, it only increases the frigidity of the world he's in from the draft from his own wings. So he's like pure absence total negativity at which point when they get to that point Virgil says to Dante but it's time to leave we've seen everything and then they slip down in a crack in the ice between the ice and Lucifer's body and climb down clutching his the hairs on his leg and make their way out of the center of the world until through a long tunnel they come out on the other side at the foot of Mount Purgatory. Hmm. So I just say that by way of talking endlessly, but that um, there's not, you don't have to draw any parallels. The parallels are already, are pre-drawn, you know, and you go, that Fraudulence. It's like in the world that we're living in, you know, we just we just go like, how did he know? Well, what and it reminds me of what Twain says, like, what's gonna get us is not what we don't know, but what we do know and are wrong. <laughs> right, 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 right. Right, totally. And I'm also thinking, I mean, in a weird way, um, what you're I'm getting the same same feeling in the in the other side of the coin with what you're describing with Dante, which I tried to read when I was 18. And I just you can't. I it's couldn't. Too, yeah, no, no, it's too hard. Um, but it's the there's the same kind of courage to go into what you're doing to offer it um, that I feel with Cervantes and Don Quixote. Well, no, and Cervantes is one of these encyclopedic. Yeah. Absolutely, Mendelssohn includes Cervantes on the list. You know, Rabelais, possibly. Uh, you know, and and maybe, maybe laterally, in Thomas Pynchon. Yeah. Um, Did you ever meet him? Did you ever? No. Yeah. He lives about fifteen blocks from here. Does he really? Yeah. I'm not that I met him, but yeah, I yeah. but I I put some effort to see if I could find his address and I found it. 
Thank you so much for today. Please. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers are George Alarcone Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Please subscribe or rate the podcast. It helps us to keep bringing them out. Thanks again for listening.